Welcome to the Valley of the Suns podcast, part of the Fansided Podcast Network. Here's your host, Gerald Borgay. Welcome, Valley boys and girls, to another episode of the Valley of the Suns podcast, part of the Fansided Podcast Network. I'm your host, Gerald Borgay. And uh, we've got two new games to talk about since the last time we spoke. There wasn't a lot to talk about with the trade deadline fallout other than analyze the moves of pretty much all the other teams around the Suns. But we do have a fresh batch of games over the weekend. Um, The Suns beat the Toronto Raptors and the Charlotte Hornets on the road. Uh, They took down the Raptors on Friday in a close one and then followed it up with another close one, an overtime win over the Charlotte Hornets on the road uh, in a weird early Sunday game Um, that probably shouldn't have been that close. But once again, and in both of these games, actually the Suns kind of played down to their competition Um, and we devoted enough time to that on the last episode. So today we're going to talk about a couple of different things. Um, We're going to start off with a few positives because I feel like the last few episodes have all been very uh, negative, despite the fact that this team is still very good. Uh, And then we're going to dive into a couple other things like the Suns fourth quarter struggles that keep coming up, as well as, um, you know, the struggles of one Dario Saric, who has just not been quite the same since the All-Star break started. Uh, And then we'll wrap up with our G-rated segment for the show Solar Opposites, which if you are a Rick and Morty fan, you should probably check out um, since they are very much in the same vein. But we'll get started with a couple positives. Keep it light at the beginning here. Um, We should acknowledge some of these things because I feel like with all of these close games that the Suns have been playing in and and how often they've been playing down to their competition, it's easy to lose sight of the fact that this is still a very good team and that this is miles better than I think anyone expected heading into the season and miles better than, you know, what we've had to deal with for the last few years watching this team play. So um, for starters, there is the positive note that the new starting lineup, aka the original starting lineup with Jay Crowder in that four spot, is really starting to come along and, and come in, into its own. Um, the Suns are up to a plus 2.0 net rating now. Um, of course, it's happening while the bench is falling apart at the same time, but they are heading in the right direction. They have a positive net rating where for you know, until the last couple of weeks or so it was negative and it was decisively negative. So they're heading in the right direction, getting on track, which is perfect. This is something we advocated for on the show is that you need to start Jay Crowder. You need to get that lineup to gel together because come playoff time, you're going to be playing that lineup uh, the most, just like you have been all season. So that's a good sign. Um, DeAndre Ayton has had a couple of decent games in the last handful or so on this road trip. Um, You know, he had that late block against Pascal Siakam. He had one of the best quarters of his career against the Miami Heat um, and, you know, made some pretty key defensive plays against Jimmy Butler. Um, And, you know, he he, I think he had like a 17.16 rebound game in that Miami Heat game. And defensively, he looks like he's showing signs of progress. Um, You know, we were getting to the stage where his defense was a little bit overrated, honestly, but um, he's been great on in the last couple of games, especially on the defensive end. Missed a couple bunnies against the Hornets on Sunday that could have kind of sealed it and made sure that game didn't go to overtime at all. But, you know, we're, we're, we're heading in the right direction with DeAndre Ayton, at least. Um, 
there's also the fact that despite the fact that the Suns are playing down to their competition and having to protect these double digit leads that shrink against worse competition, they're four and one over the last five games. And they went three and one on a tough road trip. And it wasn't tough in terms of the quality of opponents because, you know, the Heat are barely just getting their shit together. Um, the Hornets are a playoff caliber team for sure, but they're, you know, hovering around 500 still. The Raptors have been subpar this season, even though they have considerable talent, uh, a lot of it returning from last year. Um, and then the Magic, which oddly enough, the worst team of the bunch, of course, that's the team that the Suns lose to. So it wasn't tough in terms of the quality of competition, but they did have to travel all the way across the country. They had a back to back in there. Um, they had this weird early morning Sunday game, like it was 1 p.m. Charlotte time, but that's 10 a.m. Phoenix time. So there were a lot of other factors other than just, you know, they weren't playing well against bad teams. Um, and we should factor those things in, uh, as well as the fact that despite their fourth quarter struggles recently, um, I think they've scored like 25, 23, 21, and then 14 points in their last five fourth quarters. If you look at the last five games, um, including 14 against the Charlotte Hornets earlier on Sunday, um, you know, even factoring those things in, they're still four and one over that stretch and they've, their defense has been phenomenal. Even though their offense has shriveled up, the defense has clamped down to keep it relatively level there. Um, so those are good things. And then if you just take a step back and look at the bigger picture, I know that a lot of these Suns wins have been frustrating because these are the types of teams they should beat handily. Um, but they've still got the NBA's third best record, third best point differential, third best net rating, um, eighth best offense, third best defense. They're one of only three teams in the NBA that has a top 10 offense and a top 10 defense uh, joining the Utah Jazz and the Milwaukee Bucks. So by most measures, they are a top three team in the NBA so far this season. You know, we can't project for the playoffs because the Lakers haven't been healthy. The Clippers are still trying to get their shit together. Um, you know, the Brooklyn Nets have been missing Kevin Durant for more than half the season. Uh, so I'm not saying they're the third best team when you're looking at it from a finals perspective, but so far this season, they have been one of the three or four best teams in the NBA. And that means something. Um you know, we should also bear in mind they are with 31 wins. They're already four wins away from Devin Booker's highest win total in any season. And that's coming in a 72 game season with 27 games still to go. So that's incredible. Like this is blowing out any expectations any of us had for this team heading into the season. Um, they're on pace to win almost 50 games in a 72 game season. Like that's absurd. Um, so this team is a legitimate contender. They didn't make any splashy moves at the trade deadline, but we should bear all these things in mind when we, you know, get frustrated with this team. Uh, it can be more frustrating to watch a winning team not play up to its potential than just, you know, admitting that a losing team is bad. That's much easier. Um, so this takes a little bit of willpower here, but you know, it, it's a good thing. This place is, this team is heading in the right direction. It's in a good place. So we shouldn't forget that. Now we should move on to some of our more negative talking points. And we can't go much further without talking about those fourth quarter struggles. Um, as I've mentioned, the Suns have, I think their highest fourth quarter point total in the last five games was 25 points, which is fine. That's average. Um, but all the rest, like 23, 21, 14, like those are terrible. Um, so we just to paint the full picture here, overall, the Suns have a plus 6.4 point differential and a 6.4 net rating. Both of those rank third in the NBA. In the fourth quarter, those kind of shrivel up a little bit. They're still 
a, a plus 1.0 point differential with a 5.1 net rating in fourth quarters, both of which rank sixth in the NBA. Um, so a little bit worse, but not terrible. That's still elite by most measures. That's still a top six team. The problem is when you narrow it down to in the clutch, which NBA.com defines as games where the score is within five points within the last five minutes of the game, then the point differential drops to minus 0.3, which is 16th, and they have a negative 4.2 net rating, which is also 16th. So the Suns, when the game is on the line and it's close, have not been good. They have not performed well in the clutch um, they're 12 and 11. That's their record in games where they've that have involved crunch time that they played in, um, which compared to their 19 and three record otherwise is uh, pretty telling. Obviously, you know, most good teams are going to have a big contrast between clutch games and, um, you know, games where the score is not within five points within the last five minutes. But, you know, it's pretty telling that the gap 19 and three versus 12 and 11 is that glaring. Um and this isn't a problem that's going to go away because the Suns find themselves in these situations a lot. They've played the third most crunch time minutes of any team in the NBA, 107, um, and they're tied for the 12th most crunch time games overall. Um, you know, they're one in three in overtime. They finally, you know, uh, got that that monkey off their back earlier on Sunday by winning their first overtime game against Charlotte. Um, but that was a game that could have gone either way as well. Um, so it, the thing with the Suns and the clutch is when you think about the clutch, you think about clutch performers, you think about superstars, you think about big, you know, big time performances with the game on the line. And when you think about that for the Suns, obviously the two names that come to mind are Chris Paul and Devin Booker. And unfortunately only one of them has been kind of living up to his billing as a crunch time performer this season. And you know, most of us know that that's Chris Paul and that the guy who needs to live up to his end of the bargain is Devin Booker. Um, we shouldn't get carried away when we talk about this. Booker's struggles in the fourth quarter and in the clutch in particular this season should not overshadow what he does outside of that. He's made great strides on the defensive end. He's doing the little things that help teams win. Um, we've always known that Devin Booker was a great player. He just needed help. And now that he's gotten help, look at where the Suns are. They're second in the Western Conference standings. So we're not trying to take away from Devin Booker here, but this is a definite area for improvement. And it's something that's going to come up in the playoffs if he continues to play at such a poor level. Um, so in the fourth quarter, Devin Booker's averaging 4.9 points per game, which is only 45th in the NBA. Um, he's shooting just under 40% from the field and 32% from three. Um, and he's 49th in total fourth quarter points. So down pretty significantly from what you would expect from a player of Devin Booker's caliber. Now you look at the Suns record and you might think, okay, well, maybe they're just blowing teams out. And they are in a lot of these games. So Devin Booker doesn't need to put up big numbers in the fourth quarter like he used to anymore. And that's fair. But then you look at Chris Paul. And he's averaging 5.8 points per quarter in the fourth quarter this season, which is 27th, much better than Booker at 45th. Um, he's shooting 52% from the floor and nearly 39% from three. And he is 19th in the NBA in total fourth quarter points, which is actually kind of down from where he was last season with the Oklahoma City Thunder. But again, he's balancing kind of those, those fourth quarter duties with Devin Booker this time around. 
Um, and no offense to Shea Gilgis Alexander, but he's no Devin Booker in that regard. And he wasn't last year. Um, now you look at the clutch. So th- those were just fourth quarter stats. Now you look at the clutch and Devin Booker's numbers are pretty bad They're So he's averaging 2.6 points per game in, in clutch situations, which is 40th in the NBA. He's shooting 27.5% from the field and four of 20 from three point range. So 20%. Um, the Suns have an 11 and nine record in those games and he's 29th in total clutch points. So he's got 51 clutch points in 82 minutes. Um, that's really not good at all. Uh, compared to Chris Paul, he's averaging 3.7 points per game in the clutch. So that's 17th as opposed to Devin Booker at 40th. Um, he's shooting nearly 45% from the field, only shooting like 31% from three, but still a lot better than what Booker's putting up and he's seventh in total clutch points. So he's got 82 clutch points in 96 minutes. Um, Chris Paul's net rating looks really bad in those crunch time minutes. He's like a negative 13.3. But that could just be circumstance of being in a couple of really bad games where the Suns closed out poorly um, because he's played in two more crunch time games than Devin Booker has. And Devin Booker's net rating is only minus 3.1. So when they're sharing the floor, and the net rating is a difference of like 10 points for 100 possessions. You can bet that, you know, Devin Booker missed a game where the Suns just totally fell apart. Um, so what is the reason for this? There are a couple of things. I think Devin Booker just hasn't made shots that he, that we're used to seeing him make for one thing. Um, for another thing, there's still that acclimation process because as much as Chris Paul and Devin Booker are getting used to playing with each other, as much as Monty has done a great job of staggering the two of them, Um, you know, it's one of those things where you have to be thrown into these situations to learn from them and learn how your teammate, your superstar teammate is going to respond to certain crunch time scenarios. And that's something that Devin Booker actually touched on, uh, for our quote of the week here, um, because he was asked about kind of his fourth quarter struggles this season and how they're just very unlike him compared to what we're seeing. Uh, and this is what he had to say about it. If we want to go, we've got to go or want to go. You know, we're going to have to clean up, you know, some late game situations. Um, I think the best way to learn is just experience it, you know, be, being in that, being in the fire um, and learning from it. So we just have to go back, watch film, um, find some packages late that we use. Because um, we, we, you know, we have a lot of stuff. Um, but once teams, you know, lock in and switch everything, you know, it's kind of just make a play for, make a play for your teammate. How much gravity can you, can you draw? So, so it's like Booker is saying, as long as they're getting the win, that's all that matters, but they will need more from him on, you know, the, the crunch time front. He needs to be better. He knows he needs to be better. Um, I think it was after the, the Magic game or was it the Raptors game? He, he said he hasn't really thought about his fourth quarter struggles because the team is winning. But here he's saying, like, we need to clean up these situations if we want to go where we need to go. And he's right. And he's a big part of that. Um, but also a big part of it, I feel like aside from Booker just being better and these two kind of learning that give and take with the game on the line is there needs to be more activity on offense. I feel like the Suns get away from running pick and rolls with DeAndre Ayton. You know, you look at his production in the Hornets game, he had like 12 or 10 or I think he had 10 first quarter points on like five of six shooting. And the rest of the way he scored like four points like one of five or one of six shooting. They barely got him any touches after that. Um, And credit Charlotte, they adjusted and they played small and it's, 
you know, with that many defenders that can switch, it, it can be harder. But, you know, if, if they're playing small, you got to make, you got to punish them for it. Um, and I hate this idea of like, we need to feed DeAndre Ayton in the post because the post up just isn't as effective as it used to be. Ayton is really good at it, but it's, it bogs down the offense. And when the Suns try to force him the ball, as we've discussed in the past, it just doesn't go well for them. The offense gets stagnant and, you know, Ayton post ups, that's not where you want to, that's not what you want to be your bread and butter on offense. Um, but they do need to get him involved in more pick and rolls, especially late in games. Um, and the problem there is that a team like the Raptors, for example, we saw this, they have guys that can switch, you know, one through five. So they were just switching on a lot of those pick and rolls. So Devin Booker or Chris Paul, when they were the ball handler, weren't really getting those mismatches to exploit either off the dribble or by feeding it to Aiton. Um, so that's one of those situations where the offense needs to get a little bit more creative because it kind of devolves into a lot of ISOs. And that's not good for the Suns. It's not good for their crunch time offense. You're basically just relying on Devin Booker and Chris Paul to do everything in a one-on-one -on -one setting. And a lot of these teams have good defenders that can switch and can hold their own. So, you know, again, part of that is Booker just making shots that we're used to seeing him make in those one-on-one -on -one situations and those ISOs. But part of it is Monty needs to run more sets and the Suns need to be a little bit more active with their ball movement and their player movement when these games are on the line, because the offense really does get stagnant when these other teams start making their runs. Um, so that that's kind of uh, just in a nutshell, what's been going on with the Suns fourth quarter struggles. Let's move on to another area of struggle for the Suns, which unfortunately is our net rating King Dario Saric. Um, don't worry. He is still the league leader in net rating among all players, all qualified players. Um, and he's still a team high plus 6.4 in the point differential column. Um, but he just hasn't been the same since the all-star break. So if you look at his numbers from February, Sharch was putting up nearly 11 points per game in 16 minutes a night. Um, he was shooting almost 51% from the field, 40% from three, and he was a plus 8.6. In March, those numbers dropped to 8.6 points in nearly 20 minutes per game. So his numbers dropped despite playing nearly you know, three or four more minutes a night. Um, he was only shooting 42% from the field. He was shooting like 27% from three and his point differential dropped from 8.6 to 4.0. Since the all-star break, it's down to 6.9 points in 19 minutes per game. He's shooting 39% from the field and 23% from three. Um, he's still somehow, God bless Dario, he's still somehow a plus 1.5, but you can see those numbers are gradually sinking. And over the last eight games in general, you know, throwing out the two good games he had at the start uh, of the post all-star break against the Blazers and the, and the Pacers, um, he's only averaging five points in 18 minutes per game. He's shooting 31% from the field. He's shooting 12% from three and he's a minus 0 0.5. So we finally, we had to dig deep, but over the last eight games, Dario Saric is a minus in the point differential column. Um, <laughs> and somehow he's still clinging. He's total in total in his 144 minutes played in that stretch. He's only a minus four overall. So he's still somehow almost positive despite how bad he's shooting the ball. And Monty touched on how he does more for this team than just score. So he's not too worried about uh, the shooting woes, but he's in a real slump right now. And it's kind of affecting his confidence in other areas. You can just see the gears in his head turning when he's out there lately. Um, and it hasn't been great to watch because Dario Saric has been the most impactful player 
on the most impactful bench in the NBA so far this season. And we've seen that bench advantage kind of shrivel up in the last few games, which of course that happens when the Suns' starting lineup starts to figure it out. The bench kind of fails to hold up its end of the bargain. But that is something to keep an eye on because Dario Sharch just hasn't been the same since the All-Star break and, and over the last eight games in particular. So the Suns need to find a way to get him a good game. And, and part of that, I feel like we should acknowledge, like DeAndre Ayton has been playing pretty well over this last stretch of games. So that kind of factors in because there was that stretch where Sharch was playing out of his mind and Ayton couldn't get fourth quarter minutes. Now we're sort of seeing the reverse. Aiton hasn't been playing out of his mind or anything like that. Um, but Sharch, if he doesn't start playing better, he's going to start losing some of those minutes that he was getting in the fourth quarter. And, and that'd be a pity because those Chris Paul, Dario Sharch lineups, even and, or campaign Dario Sharch lineups, were killer for the Suns. And they were a big advantage that Phoenix is going to need to replicate in the playoffs um when when those rotations start shrinking a little bit so something to key on keep an eye on with Sharich. but that's going to do it for sun's talk today we're going to take a quick break and be right back with our g-rated segment right after this all right so for today's g-rated segment we're going to be talking about a show called solar opposites uh it is on hulu i think it's a hulu original um but it's basically run by the co-creator of rick and morty justin roiland um So if you are looking for a show that has kind of that same zany sci-fi humor, this will really kind of whet your appetite for Rick and Morty style content. Um, It's kind of animated the same way. It's that same kooky, like (laughs) bizarre humor um, mixed with actually really poignant observations about humans and the human condition. So uh, the premise is that these five aliens, there's two adult aliens, there's their two replicants, which are basically kind of like kids um and then there's the pupa which is this baby um they flee this planet called schlorp from an asteroid that destroys their planet they're sent to terraform and populate these new worlds but they crash land on earth and they can't leave until the ship is repaired so they basically are spending their time fixing this complex ship and and trying to fit in on earth Um, they're not really disguising themselves or anything which is kind of a fun part of the premise Um, but it's basically set around them and and how they're acclimating to life on earth. Um, So there's Corvo who is voiced by Justin Roiland, who again is the co-creator of Rick and Morty. And he does the voices for both Rick and Morty in that show. Um, And then there's Terry who's voiced by Thomas Middleditch um, who he's the main guy from uh, he's Richard from Silicon Valley. If you don't know who that is. Um, And there's Yumulak voiced by Sean Jambroni and Jesse voiced by Mary Mack. Um, and they're all, they all bring something kind of different to the table. Corvo is more strict and he's trying to uphold the traditions of planet Schlorp. And, um, you know, he's very by the book and focused on repairing the ship. And then there's Terry who is fun and just loving this life on earth and is like obsessed with humans and the stupid things that they like. Um, then there's Yumulak who is Corvo's replicant. So he kind of takes after him. He can be cruel. Like he likes shrinking humans for fun Um, but he really just wants to be kind of accepted at school and and not picked on by the popular kids. And then there's Jesse, who is uh, Terry's replicant. So she's more naive and and more um, susceptible to like finding the good in in earth and humanity. So it's kind of a a fun mix of characters. Um, And like I said, there's a lot of the same sci-fi wackiness that you'd expect from a Rick and Morty kind of offshoot show. 
um, like in one episode in season two, which just released um, earlier this week, they uh, it was Yumulak and Corvo that decided they didn't like dinner parties because they're socially awkward and they got made fun of at one. So they basically bribe a senator to out, help them outlaw dinner parties across the country and they become this dinner party police task force. And it's kind of like a, pro, a take on prohibition, only they're outlawing dinner parties. Um, and meanwhile, Terry is trying to throw all these dinner parties because he loves them and he loves humans and he loves that social interaction. Um, and so Yumulak like releases these hounds, these sci-fi hounds that they eat people at dinner parties. They're like taught to scent, like sense when people are having a dinner party based on how many entrees they have or what kind of board games they have. Um, and they eat these people at dinner parties and like poop them out as bottles of wine <laughs> to like make them more refined. Um, it's just weird things like that. Like they have a lake house contraption that Corvo uses to send messages to Terry's past self to basically change his whole personality to tailor it how he wants. Um, Yumulak in one episode decides he wants more confidence and he learns about BDE, big dick, big dick energy, and he creates a device that gives him a bigger dick so that he'll have this charisma. Um, it's just all kind and like anytime they panic or have anxiety or stress out, they start called what's gooblering. So there's these little gooblers that like pop out of their skin and their head. Um, and it's not like gross or disgusting. It's just kind of funny because there's these little gooblers that are just running around. Um, these mindless little things whenever they start panicking. Um, and it has a lot of pop culture references too. Like they, they talk about like Harry Potter stuff or like the lake house contraption, a lot of breaking of the fourth wall. Um, so it's kind of that off the wall zany humor, but mixed in with these sneakily astute like observations about humanity in general. Um, and it's kind of funny because one of the best recurring storylines about this show is it like, like Rick and Morty will go off on tangents for a whole episode with like random characters and actually do a really good job with those kind of episodes. It's the same deal here with Solar Opposites. Um, so Yumulak loves to shrink people, um, bad people or just anybody really, he's trying to get better at it, but um, he'll shrink people and put them in this massive ant farm kind of complex that he has embedded in his bedroom wall. And it has like multiple layers and there's hundreds of these shrunk humans who are basically trying to start a new society. You know, they've given up on, um, you know, they, they pissed off an alien kid and they know that and they've realized that like they have to start a new, this new society within what's called the wall. Um, so through both seasons, it like spends time with these characters that are in the wall, these random humans that don't really interact with Yumulak at all outside of like maybe a cutscene here or there. Um, like in season one, they have this rising up of, of the lower class against the guy who rules them, the Duke. Um, and they have this whole rebellion and this battle uh, that end like they're trying to climb these stairs and they're because they're all shrunk. They're like trying to throw things that have been passed through the wall to them down at these attackers like a giant eight ball comes rolling down the stairs and like murders multiple people and it's just kind of like absurd the silly things that they're killing each other with like toothpicks like bow and arrow toothpicks and stuff like that. Um, but but it's it's very interesting. Um, so in like season one, the main revolutionary Tim and his kind of lover co-revolutionary Sherry overthrow the Duke 
And then they find out that there's a hole at the top of the wall where they can get out that the Duke has been using to get supplies and continue ruling over this lower class. Um, and Sherry wants to tell the people the truth, but Tim betrays her, he murders or he's like stabs her and throws her out the hole basically and then covers it up um, to kind of protect this fragile illusion of order and prevent chaos and, and continue to uh, build this more functional society that they're trapped in, in this wall. Um, and so in season two, you find out that Sherry like survives and that she's pregnant with Tim's kid. And um, it's just hilarious because in the background of these things, because they're in this kind of like ant farm, you can see the aliens, the main characters of the show, for the most part, like doing all this goofy shit in the background silently. Um, and it's just so funny because it's so melodramatic, but it's actually like pretty compelling, the drama, the storylines of like revolutionary war that they're creating within this wall and like conspiracy and all that kind of stuff. Um, so these, they honestly are kind of the best episodes of the show because they're so silly. Like in, in the revolutionary battle, like people get killed because someone fires an arrow into a box of nerds and there's this giant avalanche that like buries all these miniature sized people. Um, and this one character Hulk in season two, he has like these traumatic flashbacks to trying to pull people out of these, this nerd avalanche and like people's limbs are severed and he's trying to save as many as he can. Um, but it's great because it's really kind of poignant with the way that it like, not only pokes fun at kind of these epic story tropes, but also delivers on them um, and kind of feeds into it. But all the while it's this ridiculous premise that it's all these humans that have been shrunk and you see all this goofy shit going on in the background. So it's, it's kind of funny and it's pretty great. And those honestly might be my favorite episodes, uh, believe it or not, but I would highly recommend it to anyone looking for that kind of Rick and Morty fix. Um, for my season two score for this show, I'm probably going to give it a 7.5 out of 10, which again seems low, but it's not great. It's not going to challenge Rick and Morty for kind of that throne of like one of the best animated shows out there right now, but it's worth watching if you like Rick and Morty and that same style of humor. Um, overall, I'd give the show a 7 out of 10. I think the first season wasn't quite as good. The second season is better and, and kind of builds on some of the ideas from season one in, in a good way, but uh yeah, that's probably going to do it for our G-rated segment. Next up on our next episode for Friday, we're definitely going to be talking about Godzilla versus Kong. It's probably going to be trash, but I'm going to love every minute of it, and I cannot wait. Um, thank you, everyone, for tuning in. If you have not written me a review on Apple Podcasts, please make sure to do so. Leave me a five-star review, and feel free to let me know any TV shows or movies that you're watching in the process, uh, and maybe we'll talk about them on the show. But that's going to do it for this episode of the Valley of the Suns podcast. Thanks, everyone, for tuning in. This is Gerald Bourget signing off.